Today we continue our journey in Genesis with uh, chapter 3. We're going to cover the whole chapter today, verses uh, 1 to 24. And uh, it's kind of as a uh, for warning or something. It's not really a warning. I won't be able to cover everything in this chapter that I'd like to, um, but we'll cover as much ground as we can. Have you guys ever, have any, any of you ever visited Notre Dame? cathedral before in Paris, uh, it, it attracts uh, over 12 million visitors a year uh, with its vaulted ceilings and crisscrossing edifice and ornate windows, columns and artwork. It is one of the finest uh, pieces of architecture in history. I went when I was uh, 15 or so. Uh, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous building. Uh, its construction began in the year 1163, so almost a thousand years ago, and it took almost 200 years to build it, almost 200 years. So it started in 1163, and it was finished, the, the project finished in 1345. And even, even when it was finished, they continued to add to it throughout the years, and so after another 500 years uh, of, a, of adding and and stuff in 1830 sorry in the 1860s uh, they added its famous steeple so if you've seen recent pictures of Notre Dame there's this gigantic steeple at the top and that was added 500 years uh, after the original construction so one of the most beautiful buildings in the world came to be what it is over the course of 500 years and it took 15 hours to destroy much of it. You guys might remember in, in April of 2019, this fire erupted and it destroyed a vast amount of the cathedral's roofing and edifice. When the, And it collapsed with it, the spire that was built in the 1860s. And when that spire collapsed, it brought down 750 tons of stone and lead. The big collapse. And, and the firefighters um, maneuvered within minutes of, of stopping the flame uh, because if the flame had reached the bells in the bells tower, 50, over 50 tons of church bells would have fallen, collapsing the towers and, and bringing Notre Dame to um, irreparable damage within minutes of stopping that happening. So 500 years almost completely destroyed in a little more than half a day. It is far, far easier to destroy something than it is to build something. It's far easier to destroy than it is to create. That's why statistics show that 60% of the time, a family's wealth, if they've accumulated wealth, will be exhausted by the children of the person that created that wealth. 60% of the time. 90% of the cases, it's gone by the time the grandchildren die. All the effort, and all the work that's put into accumulating this wealth, 90% of the time has gone in two generations. It's easier to spend than it is to save. Easier to make a house messy than it is to clean it up. A meal that takes hours to prepare is gone in a matter of minutes. At home right now, I'm preparing a meal that will have taken 24 hours to prepare. 
and it's going to be gone in 30 minutes. Consuming, erasing, squandering, using, and destroying are all easier and quicker than making or saving, producing, or creating. We have two chapters of a creation in harmony. And a 1,187 of a creation in disarray. Even of those two chapters, only 31 verses really show creation as it was meant to be with, with humanity. And that leaves us with over 30,000 verses that show creation that is completely disrupted. It is far easier and far quicker to destroy than it is to create. God's beautifully designed and carefully crafted creation is destroyed by the simple matter of eating fruit. God's image bearers come on the scene and take what God has made for them and they squander it. In a matter of moments. This chapter in Genesis is what we call the fall. It's the fall of mankind and the fall of creation. And what we're experiencing today, think about it, COVID and pandemics, increasing division, Russia maybe invading Ukraine, disease, starvation, terrorism, are all the result of the moments that we witness right here. How all of this happens. Why things are the way they are. The results of the fall. And, and what resulted from the fall was also introduced by the fall. In other words, the things in this chapter that happened once continually happen throughout history and throughout mankind. So in this chapter, we will see four new realities of living in a fallen creation. Four realities of living in a fallen creation. So I'd like us to read. We'll read the whole chapter. Follow along in your Bibles. Follow along in the screen. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were naked, were opened, and they, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and ye shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The first new reality, temptation. Here we are introduced in the narrative to a strange creature indeed, a serpent. We're not told exactly who the serpent is. We have the advantage of thousands of years now of biblical knowledge and church history. We now know who this serpent is, right, as Satan, but here... Right, the, 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 as the story flows, we're not told who it is. But, but the point is that his presence is very unnatural. Stephen Dempster wrote that the snake is a bizarre aberration in the garden with its ability to do what only humans and God can do, namely speak, and its attempt to rule the rulers. In other words, the fact that this just serpent just appears and that he's speaking and that he's here is a shock to what God has put in place. It's like finding a, a fingernail in your food or a person living in your attic. The, the presence is, is both disturbing and, and out of place. And look at how he begins temptation. Not with outright denying God, not just outright uh, denying His commands, but by turning them into a question. And that's how all sin starts. No one just wakes up one day and decides to commit adultery. It always starts with a question. It starts with a trickle and becomes an average. Did God actually say Did he really say? 
You shall not eat of, look at what he says, any tree of the garden? This question is as subtle and as slimy as a snake. Notice how, how he frames that question. It's, it's meant to bring God's goodness into suspicion. This, this is how all disobedience begins with a com- question about whether this command is good. I said, I know God said not to do this, but, but how much really? How close can I get to this? Where's the line? If God is good, then why would He forbid me to have this? The the question trips Eve up. uh, Because in her answer, she she changes the wording of the command. Right In the command in chapter 2, God said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But Eve, Eve says... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but look how she renames the tree of knowledge and how she changes the command and its consequence. But God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So, so she, she forgets its name or, or just mispronounces it or whatever. She forgets that there's also another tree in the midst of the garden. And then she adds to it saying, neither shall you touch it. So she's kind of getting it mixed up. And look how she downplays the consequence, lest you die. God's words, you shall surely die, are, are an, an over, like, um, it's this emphasis on, on this, will, you will die upon death, is what God is saying. And, and she kind of minimizes that consequence. And so, so Satan, or, or the serpent, by questioning, bringing God's commandment into question, makes Eve kind of trip it up and, and mess it up. And, and there's nothing wrong with paraphrasing God's word. That's not what is wrong here. What's, what Eve is doing, she's not paraphrasing, she's watering it down. With the question planted, and now Eve's uncertainty about the command, the serpent now moves to openly change and deny the command. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The lie that sin does not affect me. The lie that we've all believed that, that if I, if I do this sin, it, it won't affect me. And it, it won't lead to my death. And Eve not know, Eve doesn't know what evil is. Eve doesn't know what evil is, but curiosity gets the best of her. Isn't that how much, how so much disobedience starts as, as curiosity? I, I just want to know. What is it like? I just want a taste, a sample. Let, let me look behind the curtain and just see what's there. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And now death. Not a lightning bolt from God. Not instant death. This kind of death. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. That's when they died. Because the pure nakedness in chapter 2 was, was seeing and knowing clearly. Right? Nakedness in, in, in Genesis chapter 2 is, is, is the ability to be known and, and, and to be whole. You don't have anything to hide, so I'm bare and I'm open before you. Full integrity. I have nothing to hide. But now, their nakedness, instead of being a form of integrity, becomes shame. From the nakedness of innocence to now the nakedness of guilt. They had truly died. And this temptation that we see here not only results in the fall, but but also um, it was introduced by it. For we all face this temptation every day, and it happens as quick as these verses. Every day we eat the fruit with Eve. Every day we plunge creation into sin. Every day we are contributors to its demise. The temptation that we see here that that starred the fall is now a new reality that all of us face and all of us give into every day. This leads to the second reality introduced by the fall disintegration. Temptation and now disintegration. This is seen like when we saw when the woman and the man sew fig leaves together for clothes. Thus begins the human problem of hiding. Sin not only produces death, but it results in our hiding it and hiding ourselves from what it does. Sin is our secret. We hide our sin behind private window browsers, behind fudging numbers. We hide sin behind whispers and behind people's backs. We hide it behind closed doors. But before sin is ever a matter of disruption between humans, it is first and foremost a matter of disruption between human and God. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Whereas we were created to to be seen and to be known fully by God and to see Him and know Him fully, we are now hiders. We hide. And, and so we hide with excuses. We, 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 blame, we blame sin and try to hide it on, on circumstances. Right? Not having enough money. Uh, not, 
you know, having enough of whatever. We, we, we try to downplay how serious it is. Well, it really isn't that bad. It, it could have been worse. Where we're hiding. And, and, and often what we do is we try to hide our sin with, with more sin. All of these are forms of hiding of exactly what Adam and Eve are doing now. But maybe the most insidious of all is that we try to hide behind righteous acts. We think we can cover up our sin with the fig leaves of good deeds. When I was little and I would sin, I, you know, I was in Catholic school and I, I, would, I had a couple of rosaries and I, and I thought that, if, that when I sinned, I could grab this rosary and just pray and ask God for forgiveness, please, 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 that He would forgive me, thinking like this rosary was some kind of talisman to make God forgive me. Fig leaves. And we hide because we're afraid. Verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This isn't God asking because he's missing information. This is God asking because of lost relationship. God was supposed to be fellowshipping with his son and daughter. It's unnatural that God is walking alone. He's supposed to be fellowshipping with his children. Instead, the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. These ideas that we have of God, that each of us has, that He's some kind of cosmic policeman waiting for us to mess up and to to write a ticket of condemnation, giving us just one more chance before we're done, waiting to just give up on us or just throw a lightning bolt. All those are images as a result of the fall. We're afraid. We're fragmented. We're disintegrated. And one of our favorite ways to hide is behind other people. When questioned, Adam answers, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The image of God Instead of us delighting to see it spread, we want to see it diminish. So so we blame other people. It's their fault. They made us do it. Even when we compare ourselves to other people, we do it to make ourselves feel better about our sin or to give us an excuse to sin. Well, Well, they did it. We're diminishing the image of God because we're hiding behind them to cover our own sin. We're using them. And we hate. How the human heart can hate the image of God. We don't hate elephants like we hate people. We don't hate birds and trees like we hate people. Because what we hate most in others is exactly what's wrong in ourselves. 
sexism, racism, genocide, murder, stealing, all sins we commit against other image bearers is our attempt to diminish their image for the sake of our own. Disintegration. Cornelius Plantigo wrote, we are all both complicitous in and molested by the evil of our race. We both discover evil and invent it. We both ratify and extend it. Disintegration between God and humans and between human and human. Against and afraid. If there is disintegration in these relationships, then there is also disintegration within creation. The third reality introduced, imprecation. Curse. The effects of the fall have already happened. Without God doing anything, the effects of the fall are here. This shows, listen, that the consequences of sin by themselves are death. Right? In other words, God's not to blame for our misery. We are. We choose it for ourselves. We aren't victims, but causes. We died before God ever utters a word of curse. But there is still judgment, and judgment comes as curse. God's Holy justice is activated. He can't just overlook sin. God can't just sweep it under the rug. So He pronounces curse. Judgment. And He addresses the serpent first. And and, and there's two parts to God's cursing the serpent. The the first part is is a a physical kind of cursing and and the other I want to call like a, a generational cursing. And the main idea in verse 14 where, where God says, you will uh, curse are you above all livestock and all the beasts of the field is, is the utter humiliation of the serpent. Alright? Snakes today may or may not be under a special curse. Alright? I, I don't know if God is, has, has cursed the reptile snake. But they are... Listen, snakes are a perpetual reminder of the insidious nature of the tempter and his place under divine curse. So that's that physical curse. Snakes being this reminder. But but also, in the second part, we see there is more to this particular snake than than meets the eye. He's, He's not just a snake. He's not just a serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This particular serpent and all his offspring are now in moral strife and battle against the offspring of the woman. And and listen, this results not only in the spiritual battle of, of demonic forces, right? But also the perpetual battle of good and evil within the human race itself. 
This is why traditional stories like like Lord of the Rings, uh, these stories of good versus evil will never grow old because they resonate most deeply with human history and the human story. All throughout the Bible, we see this conflict between those who belong to the offspring of the serpent and those who belong to the offspring of the woman. We see it in the next chapter in Cain versus Abel. That's this, this, this whole deal. That's what this whole deal is about. Cain versus Abel. Offspring of serpent versus offspring of woman. Shem versus Japheth. Noah's children. Offspring of the woman versus offspring of the serpent. Abraham, offspring of the woman versus Canaan, offspring of the serpent. It's the curse of the snake. Second, God addresses the woman. And again, as with the serpent, to the, with the woman, there's two parts. First, dealing with childbirth, her relation to her children. And, and second, dealing with the man, her relationship with her, her husband. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Listen, this is not cruelty. It's not being cruel to women. This, listen, childbirth was supposed to be this miracle of, of placing the divine image all over the face of the earth for dominance and rule for God's glory. But now it's something of pain. And, and, and it's not just like the pain of, of just giving birth. It's more than that. It's, it's both the emotional and physical pain of, of childbearing and child rearing. And I would argue that moms know this more acutely than men, than dads. The second part, her relationship to the man what should be defined in terms of companionship and partnership. Like we saw at the end of chapter 2, will now be defined in terms of competition and domination. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Lastly, God addresses the man. The, the controlling phase and his curse over Adam is, is, is when he says, cursed is the ground because of you. Because Adam ate, he will now have pain in eating. Instead of enjoying fertility unhindered, Adam now has to fight against creation to survive. One commentator mentioned that Adam's destiny is now to be placed under the foot of the earth rather than vice versa. Not man dominating creation, but creation dominating man. It doesn't rain as it ought. Crops don't grow as they ought. Weeds and insects destroy plants. Cars break down. Technology never works as it ought. You ever get frustrated by your computer? Ever take apart your lawnmower to replace just one small piece? 
Ever had a grocery bag break on you? All of these are perpetual reminders of imprecation. The curse of creation. The last and ultimate reality introduced. Separation. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Notice the contrast between here and in chapter 1. Let us make man in our image to the man has become like one of us. The image has now been twisted and defiled. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The ultimate reality introduced by the fall is separation from God and separation from life. I want to quote Stephen Dempster again. For disobeying the divine word and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the man and woman are exiled from their geographical home, the throne room of the universe, to live east of Eden as dispossessed royalty. They are removed from the source of the river of life and from the source of their blessing, the divine presence. Here, they live outside the garden and here, they will die. Every human being from Adam to now is born separated from God. You might come to life when you're conceived and when you're born, you might come into this world living and breathing, but you are separate from life. Alienated from God. Those whom He created to be in fellowship with Him are strangers now who reject His rule. Who at the first moment they get, choose death all over again. Which means every one of you in this room came into this world separated from God and united to death. There's nothing you can do about it and nothing you can do to change it. You are married to Adam. And now... To enter the presence of God means to be smote with a sword. To be cut down by judgment. Instead of God's presence bringing us life because of sin, we die. How exceedingly evil is sin that the life-giving source of everything is death for us. How evil and terrible and awful and ugly is sin. You'll often hear that, that God's holiness means He's separate, but, but make no mistake. God's holiness isn't the cause of our separation. Sin is the cause of our separation. 
Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. But even in the midst of curse and death, there are echoes of redemption. The serpent hates the offspring of the woman. The serpent hates the offspring of the woman. This is why he consumes them. This is why Pharaoh slaughters the infant boys. Because it's the serpent devouring them. This is why Herod slaughters the babies in Bethlehem. Because it's the serpent engulfing them. But God makes a promise in chapter 3, verse 15, that no matter how much the serpent consumes, no matter how much he hates, no matter how much he loathes and tries to devour the offspring of the woman, He makes a promise. Not about offspring in general, but about one offspring. One seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent will bruise this offspring, but the offspring will deal a fatal blow. The serpent will try to devour this offspring, but the offspring will be the one to kill him. And the storyline of Scripture from this point on is pregnant with anticipation for this seed. Is it Cain? Is it Abel? Is it Noah? Is, is it Abraham? Is it David? Is it Solomon? Again and again seed appears, but each seed cannot conquer the curse. And in some ways, each seed is devoured by Satan all over again. Until God sent forth His Son. Born of woman. Born of woman. The offspring of the woman. Born under the law. Born under curse. To redeem those who were under the law. Who were under that curse. So that we might receive adoption as sons. No longer sons of Adam. Sons of God. No longer devoured by Satan and this serpent. But rescued. Victory accomplished for us. The seed came. Instead of coming into paradise as Adam, the seed came to curse. Where where Adam gave in to temptation in a garden, Jesus resisted temptation in a desert. Where Adam was subjected by creation, Jesus, Jesus subdues creation. Where Adam brought nothing but curse, Jesus became a curse to become life. The truest reality of the universe is this, that you and all humans besides you are in Adam under the curse. But there is a seed. The Lord Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of God to give life and adoption to all who call on His name. And that means all. 
all sons of Adam who are ruined by the curse, who are devoured by the serpent, who choose the fruits. There is life for you in Jesus. And you can't follow Christ and live like Adam. By faith, Christ becomes your all. To stay where you are is to stay outside the garden and die. There is death exactly where you are. There is death in just staying in sin. There is death and misery in just remaining. Why stay? Come to Christ and, and live. He is freely received. Christ is freely received. What qualifies you to come to Christ is that you're under curse. That you are in sin. That you are in Adam. And Christ lives to rescue such as these. Remain where you are and you die, but come to Christ and live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is nothing that we could have done, nothing that we could have produced to get us out of Adam. We were on a trajectory of death and condemnation and hell. Eternal punishment. Eternal suffering. Because that's what we chose. And instead of letting us go on our course of destruction and hell, You came. Without Christ, there is no rescue. If Christ never came, we would be hopeless. But Christ came. And it is because of Him and what He accomplished that we can live. Father, we are in Adam, headed for death, headed for hell. But in Christ there is life. In Christ there is rescue. And may we no longer be sons of Adam, but now counted as sons of God. Lord, we live in this fallen creation with temptation and disintegration and imprecation and curse. Separation. But in Christ you draw all near to you. We're no longer separated from You, but united to You forever. Thank You for all that You have done for us in Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.